0: This is episode 94 with best-selling author, high-performance coach, and one of my personal mentors, Mr. Brad Stulberg. Well, hello, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me again for another illuminating conversation about improving our running and getting more out of this wonderful sport. I'm recording this on a sunny Friday afternoon. My legs are still a little sore from a long run I did this morning, and I'm feeling good. I'm getting back in a better shape over the last couple months to prepare for uh, a trail race that I have in early June, and things are going pretty well. I'm feeling good. I'm starting to feel better on some of those more challenging workouts and long runs, and I recently joined Strava. So if you wanna connect with me there, feel free to find me. And I found that the accountability of knowing my workouts will have an audience is pretty powerful and it's really helping my consistency. So something to noodle on if you struggle with staying consistent. Okay, let's talk about our guest today, my man, Brad Stolberg Now in the intro, I called him one of my personal mentors. But, you know, this isn't a formal relationship that we have. Instead, it's just a recognition that I respect Brad's work. It's made a really big impact on me personally, and I'll basically read anything he writes because I found someone who really understands the concepts of performance and has a really productive perspective, I think, on wellness and health and how to get the most out of yourself, and I hope you recognize Brad's expertise as well. He's the co-author of two books that I absolutely love, Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid Burnout, and Thrive with the New Science of Success, and his latest book, The Passion Paradox, A Guide to Going All-In, Finding Success, and Discovering the Benefits of an Unbalanced Life. Now, Brad specializes in working with both athletes and other top performers like business executives, for example, on a lot of different aspects of success. Things like mental toughness, how to get into a really deep focus or a flow state, resilience, defining a path for long-term progression, optimal routines, sustainable motivation, cultivation of talent, all kinds of really cool topics that I just love to dive into. And Brad is also a columnist for New York and outside magazines, he's contributed to the New York Times, Wired, Sports Illustrated, and so many other major media examples. He's a former member of the White House's National Economic Council and an employee at the international consulting firm, McKinsey and Company. Let's take a real quick hot minute today to thank our sponsor, SteadyMD. They're like a personal concierge doctor for endurance runners. And they're currently working with some of the top runners in the country right now, like ultra runner Tim Olson, Neely Gracie, and they give you 24/7 access to a doctor who's also a runner. And in this case, it's led by sub three marathoner, Dr. Josh Emder. And you know you're getting great runner-specific service. If you go to SteadyMD.com strengthrunning, you can see if they have any spots left and check out all the different benefits and services they offer endurance runners. Okay, our conversation today with Brad, we're talking about how we can fine-tune our passion for running into a lifelong drive toward mastery, joy, and fulfillment without burning out. Please enjoy this very interesting conversation with Mr. Brad Stolberg. Brad, it's so great to be speaking with you again. Thank you for coming back on the podcast.
1: Hey, man. Yeah, it's great to be speaking with you again, too.
0: So I'm excited. You have written yet another book with your partner, Steve Magnus, all about passion. And uh, it's a kind of an interesting time to be writing about passion. And that's one of the reasons why I was so interested in talking with you, because I feel like we've gotten to this point where... People are tired of being told, follow your passion, go find your passion. It's just, it's not good enough. And we're realizing that it's too simple. And diving into your book, I'm really learning that um, this is a defense of passion. And it's a more nuanced, effective perspective on passion, I think, that acknowledges that passion is sometimes hard to find and that it must be cultivated and that too much of it can indeed be a bad thing. So finally, a book on the subtleness of passion. Thank you so much for writing it.
1: Yeah, thanks. I'm glad that um, I'm glad that that that's your you're kind of leading in and your first thought, because um, that was exactly a big impetus of the book is there. There has been so much stuff out there on find your passion, follow your passion, um, really over the last three decades or so uh, that there's been like this backlash but the backlash is against a very superficial understanding of what passion is and how it emerges. Um, so it was an opportunity for Steve and I to try to set the record straight um, on a topic that is is discussed but also off misunderstood.
0: Yeah, and that's how I look at it, too. I look at it as, you know, I'm 35 years old, so my entire life I've been told, you know, I'm an older millennial, I've been told- We're of the
1: same generation, yeah. My high school graduation, college graduation, graduate school graduation, high school football coach, like, I'm sure, across the board.
0: You know, you gotta find your passion and then you just need to follow it. And as long as you are, you know, borderline obsessed about whatever your passion might be, then, you know, your life is gonna be just fine. And it's, that's just not the case, and so your book really dives into this in a much more structured way, and I can't wait to dive into this with you, um, but, I mean, why did you write this book? Is it because you were tired of the kind of old paradigm of looking at passion? I mean, was stress plus rest equals growth not, not enough?
1: <laughs> so the stress plus rest equals growth, um, that's from the first book for those of you um, that that didn't get a chance to listen to our first conversation together. Um but it's funny because stress plus rest equals growth um, wasn't enough. And like that's exactly how this book started. So Steve and I had finished our first book, which is called um, Peak Performance, and we finished it early. And Steve, my, my writing partner, lives in Houston and I live in Oakland. And um, we had scheduled uh, like a 10-day period of time to be together to go through edits um, but our editor was running a little bit behind and, and sent us an email. would have been nice if we got more notice the day that Steve arrived saying, I'm running behind, you're not going to have the edits, but the book looks really good. No major changes. Uh, and we're both first-time authors with a big publisher, and rather than like, spend the 10 days on a vacation, we had about 30 minutes, and then we're like, well, shit, Like we got 10 days together. What are we going to do? Let's start working on the next thing. And then we kind of stepped back and we said, well, wait a minute. Why do we want to work on the next thing? Where does this drive come from? Both Steve and myself growing up have always been kind of celebrated for our intense drive and passion. But then we started wondering, well, well, is it a good thing? And and wouldn't it be nice to just be content for a little bit and like not have to work on the next thing? And what's really wrapped into passion? Um, And neither of us are religious, so we didn't have like this whole understanding and undertone that passion comes from Paseo, which means to suffer and it's all wrapped up in like the suffering of Jesus Christ. So like, is passion really this beautiful thing or is passion suffering or is it both? Um, and we dove into the research for like a half day and we looked at each other like this is like what we should be working on. Um, and it turned into a book because, you know, we were writing it for ourselves to try to explore where does this drive come from? Is it good or is it bad or is it just something that is? And then also, as I said earlier, it didn't take long for us to realize that pretty much everything out there on passion is wrong.
0: Yeah, and it's funny you you brought up Jesus Christ. I I still have PTSD from Passion of the Christ, a movie that came out, I think, when I was in middle school or very early high school that for some reason I saw in theaters, and it was just extremely graphic. But you're right that this passion idea can certainly be a double-edged sword. It can really help you and drive you forward, or it can really drag you down. Um, But maybe we can start with the difference between a passion And passion as a practice because I think we focus too much of our time on the thing that we want to be passionate about rather than the the behaviors that allow us to go all in
1: totally so I think that that's a really good place to start as well Um, the way that I like to think about it is there's a three-way dichotomy so the first is that there is romantic passion and then there is um, activity or endeavor-based passion. This book focuses on the latter. Um, so it's about passion for an activity, for a career, for a hobby, for some kind of endeavor. Um, and then there is a passionate temperament, which is just it to be a person that is passionate. And then there's like what you're saying, there's, um, there's passion for a single activity. And I think that the, a passionate temperament... Um, is really somebody that that's just that, like I said, that struggles to be content um, and that wants to continue to push forward and has all of this like, pent up energy and drive. And if there's not the next project on the horizon, it can kind of almost be like discombobulating. Um, and again, that's a double edged sword. Like that can be a good thing and that can be a bad thing. It, it, it's like rocket fuel for innovation and discovery and creativity, but it also is not fun not to ever just be able to like be content for more than a couple of days or or if you're really bad, a couple of hours. Um, and then what ends up happening is passionate people that that have this temperament, they latch onto certain activities. And again, that can be a beautiful thing or that can be destructive. It can kind of be both. Um, and then just for the, 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 the science people that are listening to the, the, the show, um, neurochemically, what's going on in that passionate temperament is there's a neurochemical called dopamine, which is associated with striving and like the chase. And um, individuals that are really passionate um, are likely insensitive to dopamine. So they need more of it to feel good. So that is what is fueling this kind of urge and this drive for the next project, the next race, the next starting of a company, the next big idea versus just being okay where you are.
0: Man, I feel like you're describing me. <laughs> like I I I really relate to that. That resonates with me. And it it does remind me of a book that Chris Gillibo wrote a while back called The Happiness of Pursuit. And that really struck a chord with me because he talks a lot about the the fact that we shouldn't be pursuing happiness. We find happiness in the pursuit of something that I guess, with lack of a better word, we're passionate about, that we're really interested in. Uh, And and I love that. And I think if we have a better understanding of the healthy behaviors that allow us to be passionate, then that's a a lot more productive for us than just saying, I'm going to be passionate about gardening or running or whatever it is. Because sometimes... You don't know how to build that passion. Um, And so let me ask you, is it a fool's errand to look for something to be passionate about? Is it something that everyone is just knocked in the head with one day?
1: that's No, no, that's the first big myth, right? Is like find your passion is bullshit. Like you don't actually find a passion, you have to cultivate a passion. And it's the expectation that you're gonna find a passion that actually gets in the way. Um, So coming out of school Our generation, we're kind of told that like, oh, you should find this perfect job or this perfect activity if it's going to feel great right away. And if it doesn't, then it must not be the thing you're passionate about. So move on to the next one, where in fact, all the research shows that individuals that have long lasting passions, they didn't start out as passions. They started out as just merely interests and people following this interest and having the patience to allow it to blossom and to emerge in something that they're passionate about later on. Um, the research on romantic passion mirrors this to a T. So something like 78% of people believe that they have a soulmate. So, you know, of the 7 billion people in the world, there's this one perfect person for them. But again, the research shows that sustainable, happy relationships and people that end up in them, they actually view love more as an ongoing process and something that they have to cultivate and keep nurturing. Um, so it's this mindset of, oh, I'm going to find a passion. It's like lightning striking that is really destructive because it keeps you in seeking mode. And there's a huge difference between being a seeker and a practitioner, right? A practitioner, like, you're doing the thing, you're building it. A seeker, it's, oh, running's my passion. And then you have your first little injury or or, or crappy training week. Oh, I guess running's not for me. Maybe it's cycling. Oh, it's not, maybe it's art. And oh, but my article didn't get published. So maybe it's actually music. And you just bounce from one thing to the next. and And you see that a lot in the in the workforce too, with people just not being not not staying in jobs. Some jobs just suck, but I think a lot of times it's this way too high bar that's been based on find your passion, find your passion.
0: Yeah, now, do you think there's a little bit of a generational issue with our generation maybe or or even uh, the next generation uh, those who are a little bit younger than us, sticking with things that they may not be enormously interested in from the very beginning, because you talk a little bit the a little bit about this in the book, uh, and you call this a fit mindset. Uh, yeah. You've it's this idea that, you know, if you don't if you're not awash in passion, the moment you start something, yeah, then you move on. It, it must not be the thing that you're passionate about. But I'll tell you the first day that I went running,
1: <laughs> right.
0: I, I couldn't finish a three mile run. I was sore for a week. I hated it. I almost quit. And look at me now. I mean, that was 20 years ago totally. and I'm still running around yeah. the neighborhood.
1: Yeah. So I think the big thing is, is to lower the bar from, like you said, like awash in passion to interesting. And if something interests you, then be patient with it and give it more than a week, a month. You know, maybe you cap it at a year. Or if you really hate the thing, then move on. Sure, this isn't about like suffering through something you dislike. Um, But yeah, don't expect it to be perfect right away. Let it be interesting. And then the other interesting thing that the research shows is that activities that tend to blossom into um, productive passions, they meet three basic human needs. The first is autonomy, or you have some control over the work. The second is mastery, or you can actually see yourself improving. There's a pathway to getting better. And then the third is belonging or community, which is you feel like you're a part of, um, of something greater and in, in, in ideally a community with other people. Um, so running, it's not surprising that so many people are passionate about running. Running ticks off those three boxes very easily. Um, same thing with writing, lots of creative pursuits.
0: Yeah, I think runners tend to struggle a little bit more with the community aspect of things because running almost by definition can be a very solitary sport and and I think, you know, the the longer that I spend being a coach, the more time I am trying to spend on developing that community, developing that sense of, you know, a, a tight knit bond between runners, which is hard as a virtual coach, but you know, I, I really see the, the enormous benefits with surrounding yourself with other people who are not only striving for similar goals uh, and can be examples, but also that you can share stories with and that you can commiserate with. And, and there's a lot to be said about that entire process.
1: Totally. I mean, I think that that's what it's all about um, is, is like the relationships with other people. Um, it's actually really timely right now. Billy Donovan, uh, who coached at Florida, and uh, took a job with the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, He was just interviewed um, about what it felt like to win his second national championship when he won two in a row. And, And he said that he was super depressed because he thought that like winning that championship would make him whole and validated. But what he realized is that in the pursuit of it, he put on blinders and let go of all other people in community. And the championship doesn't change him. What changes him is being a part of um, and that was like a really powerful video that that struck a chord with me because again a theme in the book is just that that um, that being amongst other people that have this common interest that you have bonds with that that is so important for sustaining a passion in a healthy way. In
0: hindsight, when I look back on my running career, I'm so grateful that I was able to start running. As a member of a cross-country team and then a track team and then I had a coach and all these teammates and it was really such a great environment for learning a new sport and you know developing a what I'll call a healthy addiction for for running It was a a really special time.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of runners because I know that's the predominant audience um a lot of runners fall into this trap where they can get so obsessive about their exact workout that they don't do group runs or they don't train with other people because, oh, I'm supposed to do my long run Sunday, but the long run of the group is Saturday and I don't want to change my schedule or I'm supposed to go at seven minute pace, but they're running at 710. Um, and I think that like there are extremes, if you're constantly just throwing your schedule out the door so you can be with other people. Well, that's probably not a great path to progress, but I think a lot of people fall on the other extreme where you're so rigid, that you sacrifice running with a group or with other people, and what's actually gonna be better for your performance and your mental health in the long term is running with the other people off five or 10 seconds from your pace. Now, if it's like your key workout in a build, sure, nail the pace, but if the group is running 15 miles on a trail and you want to run 16 miles on the road, like, go run with the group.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my, the the coach in me is um, fist pumping right now because you know your body doesn't really know the difference between seven minute pace and seven ten pace. If you're running you know uh, two hours on the roads for 16 miles or a little bit slower for 15 miles on the trails, let's not debate this kind of minutia in our training. You're going to be with other runners. You're going to be in a more positive, productive mindset, and that's more important in the long term than you know was I six seconds faster per mile in this long run? Because at the end of the day it doesn't really matter that much
1: totally and just like the amount of cortisol and stress from being stuck in your head for two hours looking at your watch about your pace probably takes more of a toll on your body than like if you do the group run you end feeling good so um yeah for sure
0: well, this is a good time to ask you, when can passion become destructive? Because you're starting to kind of allude to this idea that if you yeah. are so rigid in your yeah. approach to mastery, to developing this passion, it can actually be counterproductive.
1: For sure. So I think that like there's the rigidity issue, um, which is when the inertia of what you're doing gets so strong that you lose the ability to see beyond it. Um, and almost become delusional. There's some interesting research in the book talking about how when someone is in the throes of passion or desire, what's happening in their brain is very similar to someone struggling with an eating disorder. The person struggling with an eating disorder looks in the mirror and they don't see somebody that is gaunt and malnourished. They see someone that's fat. The passionate person looks at their pursuit and doesn't see anything rational about it. They just see the pursuit. And if you look at like the most passionate individuals, um, entrepreneurs that want to start world-changing companies, athletes that want to win medals at the Olympics, those things are by definition delusional. Like like the odds of doing it are so slim that in order to try to do it, you have to be crazy. Um, so there's like this, there's this linkage where when you get on that track, it can become hard to get off. So that's the first way that passion can run amok. Um, and we'll table that for a second, then we can pick these apart separately. And then the second way, which is, I think, the most common in, in amateur athletes and in, in, in even pros, is um, when your passion shifts from being passionate about the activity itself to being passionate about the external validation or the results you get from it. So this is when you go from loving running to loving posting Strava workouts and getting good feedback. Or you go from lo- like loving the training process to loving the fact that you ran under three at the Boston Marathon. Now, it's not binary. And I'm not saying that you should completely forget about external results and goals and validation. But those things just shouldn't drive the ship. Um, in, in, in the research, that's called the difference between harmonious passion and obsessive passion. So harmonious passion, we'll use the example of running, is when you love the activity itself. You love running. You still care about your race results and all that, but it's not the predominant source of your drive. Obsessive passion is when you care about the results and you're more passionate about the results than the activity itself. And that would be when all you really care about, or not all you care about, but the driving force is like kneeling a goal time or getting on the podium or crushing a Strava segment. And what happens is harmonious passion is associated with life uh life satisfaction, general well-being, health and lasting performance. Obsessive passion is associated with anxiety, depression, burnout and cheating. Um I just went in a long rant kind of about the logic and science. I think the easiest way to do this for athletes is like Lance Armstrong epitomizes obsessive passion. Dude is super passionate. He started out super passionate about cycling. He got a taste of success and the passion shifted to being crazy about success. And therefore, when he wasn't surely going to have it, he cheated.
0: It reminds me of the story of Theranos, the company that was going to be developing a a blood testing service using just like a tiny vial of blood. And they just engaged in massive fraud to hopefully change the world. But, you know, they were so focused on the result of what they were doing.
1: Looted. Yeah. And that story is in the book because um, that story is in the book. And we talk about Elizabeth Holmes, the founder. Because she, if you look at the coverage of her before the fraud, like the, the, the cat was out of the hat, she, um, she was always talking about how passionate she was. And it's like, yep, she was. But like her passion was no longer pointed at scientific discovery. It was pointed at making a, you know, $900 billion or $1 million company. And once that external thing is all you care about, you're either going to do anything you can to ensure it happens, which is like cheating and fraud or you're gonna suffer from anxiety, depression, burnout. And it's subtle, like no one no one decides, oh, I wanna be obsessively passionate. Like the common trajectory is you start out harmonious, you start to get good results, good results feel good, so then you latch on to those, and then you can't live without them.
0: It almost sounds very much like the kind of runner who's more process oriented versus the runner who's just results oriented. You know, the runner who who loves executing a good workout and doing a long run the way that they should versus the long run or I'm sorry, versus the runner who simply wants the goal time. They simply want that big PR or the Boston qualifying time and you often get there by kind of forgetting about it, by by not worrying about what your marathon time's going to be or how fast you might run that 5k in 8 months. I mean, who knows? The process of getting there is always so much more important. Now, are there any early warning signs that runners should be aware of where they might kind of starting to be venturing down this road of being obsessive about only results or having that be their driving force? How can how can runners, you know, do a little bit of a gut check and, you know, pull themselves back from that?
1: Yeah, I think there are, um, there are a few, a few things and runners are a good population because like there are some very concrete behaviors that I think point towards this. Um, the first is if you let a bad workout, like totally ruin your day. And if that happens consistently, I mean, I've been there, I've like missed a workout and like thought about it and ruminated the rest of the day. But if, if, if that's starting to happen where like the quality of your day is based on the quality of your running workout, that is sign for concern. Because not every workout is going to be great. Some are going to be bad. And you don't want to suddenly have like shitty days, especially if you're an amateur, because you had a crappy workout. Um, another is if you are like super excited to share your workouts on social media. Um, like, well, why are you like, why can't it just be good enough that you did the workout for the workout's sake? Why do you need other people to know about it and comment on it and, and like it or retweet it or whatever? Um, another is, uh, just paying a lot of attention to what other people are doing. So like spending a lot of time in aft or other race results, kind of like checking to see other people's times. Um, and then, um, I think, a, a, a less obvious one is just like, um, over reliance on, and I don't want to say the watch, but on metrics to the point where if you don't have them, you get anxious.
0: Yeah, well, there's so much there that I want to unpack. Um, I I think a community really helps keep runners in particular in check when they start overly comparing themselves to other runners, Um, you know, especially when you become, you know, too invested in the results of a workout or to, or, or the results of a, a race, you know, your community, the the helpful, supportive, good runners that you surround yourself with are going to be really good at saying, well, yeah, but you ran a PR last week. You can't run a PR every week or last week's workout was great. And there's so many different examples of that.
1: Yeah. And I think that when community is missing, it gets replaced with like this craving and this striving for external results or for like sharing on social media Because if there's no real community to just go hang out with and feel good for the sake of, hey, I feel good. I'm with my people and we just ran, then it's like, oh, where am I going to get that dopamine hit from? So I'm going to put a Facebook post up and see how many people like it. Um, I think it's worth reiterating again and again that it's not binary. Like, it's okay to post about a workout. Like, you should feel good when you crush a run. Like, this isn't about like qualming all emotion, it's just about trying to ease out these crazy highs and lows that you have if everything is so important and you need that social validation.
0: Right. I'm glad you said that because I think it's beneficial to think of this almost like a spectrum where you can be too passionate about the results of Whatever you're pursuing, and on the other side, you can just be completely apathetic. And, and totally. finding that balance and layering on top of some of those healthy behaviors that allow you to turn that pursuit into a sustainable pursuit is is really important. Um, and then, you know, of course, passion can devolve into burnout. Um, and and I think this is common among runners because you know the sport is kind of a Type A uh, sport that attracts a lot of very driven people. Um, when you use the term burnout or burning out in your book, The Passion Paradox, what do you mean by that?
1: The, 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 the way that I like to think about burnout is when there is a, um, a cascade of symptoms and they can be psychological or physiological that results in stagnating performance for a long period of time and um, stagnating enthusiasm for the thing itself. Um, everybody that trains hard goes through training blocks where it is a struggle to do the work. If that becomes consistent for months and the performance is going down and you kind of feel like I'm running because I have to, but I don't really want to. Um, or you start to have physiological sensations like your hands and feet are freezing all the time. Um, there is headaches. You're not sleeping well that is when it's somewhat cause for concern that, you know, it could be, um, it could be approaching burnout. And I think in running overtraining and burnout, I'd say are pretty much the same thing. Overtraining, more physiologically driven burnout, maybe more psychologically driven, but it's basically like the mind body system saying, I can't like this level of pushing, whether it's psychological tightness, rigidity, or physiological work is too much.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you if there was a difference between burnout and overtraining, because overtraining, you know, I look at as much more of a physical problem. You know, this is where, you know, your heart rate's at 180 going up a short flight of stairs, or, you know, you normally can run very easily at nine minutes a mile. And now your easy pace is 10 minutes a mile. And there's really distinct physical manifestations of, this overtraining syndrome. And and I also look at burning out as kind of like the the precursor to overtraining. And and, and yeah. this is a spectrum as well. I see overtraining as, you know, th- this that requires time off and replenishment and really making sure that, you know, you are getting a lot of rest. But burning out, I think is a much more slippery slope because it's, it's it's like you mentioned, it's more mental, it's more psychological yeah. and uh I think it includes a lot of bad habits and those bad habits can become ingrained. What are some of the bad habits that that kind of may result in burning out? Because I think as runners, we we're good at at setting habits, even if they're bad sometimes.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think one is a lot of time spent on social media, um, particularly like posting workouts, commenting on workouts, comparing on workouts. Um that becomes such a strong habit. And, uh, it's very much like any other addiction where like when you're doing it, you feel really good. But then after doing it for an hour, you probably feel pretty like hollow and empty or kind of gross. But then what do you do when you feel gross? Like you go back for more. It's like Um, Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and again, like these things are on a spectrum. Twitter can be great. Depends on what you're using it for. Um, but if you're going to these places to like compare and seek validation, that's not great. Uh, If you're constantly like anxious about your workouts or if the only thing that you can think about throughout the day is the workout that you have to do regularly, you're like that, that's a sign for concern, uh, because that amount of tension in emotional angst associated with that catches up to you. And eventually like the, 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 pressure cooker explodes, um, per se, Uh, And then I think the the other thing is just putting so much of your identity and self-worth in a race result. Because if you don't get it, you're going to be just blasted with emotion. And you can only sustain enough of those lows before you're just like, what's the point of this? And the flip side is also true. If you do get it, kind of like Billy Donovan, that coach, well, you wake up the next day and you're gonna realize the world's not really different. And if you're expecting it to be, you might be upset too.
0: Yeah, so interesting. There's so much to to unpack there. And and maybe I can maybe I can ask you what happens when passion starts to fade? Because this is I, I think a tough thing for runners who start running early in life because they have this amazing upward trajectory, uh, yeah. say they start running in high school, you know, their 20s is just PR land. You know, They're sending personal bests in, in all kinds of races if they're consistent and smart about their training, but inevitably, they're not gonna be running as fast as they were, and I, I think a lot of runners tend to get into this phase of their running career and their passion for the f- sport changes and it starts to fade a little bit. And like you were mentioning before about, you know, your sense of identity is now almost under attack. You know, you're the guy who could run a 30-minute 10K or a 40-minute 10K, and now you're not. And that's a big knock to a lot of people. How do we grapple with that? And what can we do when the the object of our passion is, you know, changing for us?
1: I, I think that... Um... It depends on if it's changing by forces of nature, so in this case, aging, or if it's changing emotionally, if you're just kind of not as passionate and interested in it. If it's the latter, it's probably not problematic. I mean, I think, again, it depends if like you had a crappy season and you're like, I'm done. Well, are you really done or do you just need some time away from it to kind of think and and then decide? But if you've been running at a high level for 30 years, and you decide that, hey, like I think I'd rather take up strength training or swimming or hiking or you know you name it, making necklaces with all my spare time, like that's great, go do that. I mean, if you're not if you're not making a living running, there's nothing that says that you have to be a runner always. And maybe you'll come back to it later. I think what's far more common is that the passion fades because. Um, performance goes down based on natural factors and or there's an injury that causes you to shift or a life event like you get married you have a kid so you can no longer run 120 miles in a week um that that can be really tough because like you said if your identity is so wrapped up in being a runner well it's like well then what happens um what i would say to that is being a runner is so much more than running running is like the least part of it. Um and, and maybe that's a stretch. I know like <laughs> you've got a coaching business, you need runners, but um but like you can coach, you can support other people, you can still be a part of races, you can volunteer, um you can write about the sport, you can read about the sport. Like there are so many ways to stay involved. Uh it's funny, like I'll I'll use myself as an example because I think I'm, I'm the perfect example. So I grew up playing power sports, uh, predominantly football and and also basketball, and in college got into endurance sports, and then spent 10 years uh, running. And I always felt like I was fighting against my body. I'm not built like Jason, for those of you that can't see all of me. I'm built like a football player. (laughs) Um, And again, I don't always practice what I preach. I I really wanted to run a sub-three marathon, And I got down to like 303, and then I got sick, and the race I was going to do it in, I blew up. Uh, And it had been 10 years, and my wife and I were having our first kid, and I was putting a lot of physical and mental energy into this thing. And I just said, you know, like, I think I'm done running for now. I'm going to start cross-training, strength and conditioning in the weight room, and I'm going to get all my aerobic fitness from hiking with my kid, because that way I can spend time with him instead of stressing out about these runs. I haven't run... In a year and a half, I haven't run a mile, done a ton of hiking, and I have not felt more connected to the running community than I do now. I volunteer at races, I support my wife who runs, I'm close friends with a bunch of runners, many of which are pro. I get to write about the sport, I get to be on podcasts like this. Um, I got like an honorary run Oakland hat from the Oakland Marathon, even though it was the first time in like five years I didn't run it. So, I think that it's really important to know that, again, like in a healthy passion, what you find is the thing that you're often passionate about is the community and the activity is just one way to be involved.
0: This definitely reminds me of older coaches in the sport who, you know, they're 70 years old. They're not really running anymore but they're still so involved in the sport and they've turned their passion for running into coaching or supporting the sport in another way. And, you know, admittedly, Brad, I'm kind of asking you for selfish reasons because th- that exactly happened to me. You know, I was so passionate about running and I still am, but I had my first kid in 2013, my second kid in 2015, my third kid in 2017. Oh,
1: I know you have three kids. Geez, OP. Yeah.
0: The <laughs> third kid, yeah. So, uh, two, yeah. I have two girls and a boy and awesome. it's become very difficult to run the 80 to 90 miles a week that I used to do before I had children. And you know, even after I had uh, my first my first child, I ran the Boston Marathon in 2014, I attempted an ultra marathon in 2015 right before my second was due. We joked around that it was like my last running hurrah. But it's just so challenging to put in that amount of work that I need to do to, yeah. um, to to run at my best. And so now I'm kind of in this weird situation where I can't do the work to run at my best, but I still love running. So I'm still running and I'm doing workouts and long runs and drills and strides and everything that you would uh, assume a runner to be doing in their training. But it's all just just shortened and condensed and, and cut short because, you know, I have to be a dad and a husband and and be a coach too. Hard,
1: I'm curious. Is it hard for you to know that you're not giving it your all? Yes. Yeah. That, so like that's the thing. And, and and I think for me, and I don't run at the level that you run, um, but for me, and, and everyone's different, I, I kind of had to rip the Band-Aid off and just stop because if I was doing it half-ass, there'd be such a part of me that was like, well, I could do harder workouts. I could put in more miles. Like maybe I could get that 259 race. Um, whereas if, if, if I if I just stopped altogether and focused somewhere else that didn't take nearly as much time in, in physical and mental energy, um, it was easier for me to, to do it like that. Um, but still stay plenty involved in the running community. And, and like, again, I want to put my skin in the game because I don't have all this stuff figured out. I, I write to figure it out. I had all those insecurities like, oh, like, are people going to take me seriously if I don't run? Like, how can I be on podcasts like this? And how can I sell my book to runners if I don't even run anymore? So I had all of those thoughts. Um, And I'm sure some people do discredit it because I don't run. But like, I'm not really worried about that. That's fine. Uh, Because I just I don't think that you have to do the thing to be immensely involved in the community. Um, Something that you'll have to work out over time is... How, how much time are you spending, and I'm not asking you to answer this on the air, but like, how much time are you spending kind of like in, a, in an anxious loop about like well, I could be putting in more miles and I, I could run that fast time versus just enjoying it? And if you're just enjoying it, great, do the condensed version. If you're in that loop and you really want this thing, but you know that there's no way you're going to be able to run 90 miles a week now and get it, then maybe it's, it's worth considering. like What would it be like for six months to not run and to take the time that you were running and do it in other like just I mean walking hiking there's so many ways to stay healthy
0: yeah I'm sure my wife would would love it if I did exclusively strength training instead of running Um, but (laughs) we'll see yeah and for me you know you said I don't have to answer but I think I will I think the value of running in the mountains outside of Denver and suffering a little bit on the track, even if it's, you know, a a pace that used to be easy for me, uh, that still is enough of a thrill and a valuable part of my life that it it overrides any kind of anxiety I have. And, And don't get me wrong, there is that anxiety. It is certainly there. And, and yeah, I'm in a little bit of a loop where, you know, if, you know can i be a coach if i don't also you know run and can i be a coach if i don't run kind of fast you know there's all those questions and uh i think in terms of sustainability we have to come down on the line of doing what works for us and puts us on a path to um you know being comfortable with where we're at and and our interests
1: totally and, and, and as long as your identity this gets back to what we we're talking about earlier like You can still be super passionate as a person. You can be a passionate coach. If your identity is wrapped up in the fact that I need to be a 230 or whatever it is marathoner, that is risky because at some point you're not going to be, you're going to get older, you're going to have kids, whatever it is. If your identity is more wrapped up in I'm super passionate and I put this passion into this sport and you define it broadly, then there are a million ways to do it because you start coaching, you start having a podcast. Um, so I think building out that broad, that diverser identity is very helpful.
0: Yeah. And to me, it's, it's also about more of a process and, you know, the passion for the sport that I have, it has to be focused on the process rather than on any kind of external results. And and now that I'm older, it's not just, you know, how many runners I'm coaching. It's, it's how those runners are doing. It's not just how fast I'm running. It's how, how am I really enjoying the runs that that I'm doing now, Brad, how can the, how can a massive mindset shift like this occur? Because I don't think most people are there yet.
1: When no, when it's so hard. many
0: folks are just focused on externalities.
1: Yeah. So it, this this is a, such a good question because like we can sit here and talk about this stuff, but listening to this conversation, what will happen is like you'll feel good about it for a week at most, and then you'll probably just like go back into your old habits. So uh, like mood follows action, and you have to like take concrete actions to rewire your brain. In this way. Um, I think that the, 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 the action that is my favorite for this is something that in the book I call the 24-hour rule. And that is after a huge big win or a really hard defeat, give yourself 24 hours to celebrate the victory or grieve the defeat, feel really good or really bad, but then get back to doing the work itself. Because when you do the work itself, Ideally in a community, it sends like this embodied reminder that, oh, hey, like the reason I love running isn't so I can sit and check Facebook for 24 hours after my sub three race. It's because I like the training. And the more that you can get back to the work the, and the faster, you're not giving those, um, those roots in your brain that are so associated with craving external validation and results time to grow and, and to plant those seeds. Um, I think another thing that, that I challenge a lot of runners with, um, is not using social media to talk about, uh, results. It's fine if you want to share the process of your training and stuff, but like, nope, don't, don't post your times for your races. Or if you crush a workout, don't post it. Um, and just like, let the fact that you enjoyed the workout be enough. And what happens when people do this is for the first month, they hate it. And they feel, like, anxious and sad and, like, why can't I do this? Why can't I share? And then after a month, like, their brain starts rewiring. Like, this is awesome. I feel free. Like, I'm no longer, like, in a rush to look at what people think about my work. I'm just doing it because I love the thing.
0: I have just done the opposite, Brad. Um, I have just joined Strava. And uh, (coughs) I I think I have 10 days, 12 days worth of workouts at this point. And uh, I'm almost... I'm almost doing exactly the opposite of what you just said. And my brain is starting to crave, well, let me just check that workout because I wanna to totally. see like how many kudos I got. Like, does it even matter? It it doesn't matter whatsoever. Um and, and this is something that now that I'm at least aware of it, I'm certainly but going to have, take a yeah, lot of but steps.
1: You have- but you have to try to change the behavior. Um, and again, I, I put my skin in the game again because like, I, I hate it when people write these books and act like gurus, like, like, oh, it's just magic. They can do it. That's not me. I knew that having this book come out, it's a big deal. There's, there's bestseller list. There's people tweeting about it, talking about it. Sure enough, I found myself at every moment going to Twitter and seeing how many retweets I got or how many likes or how many people were talking about the book. And in the moment, it would feel great. And then later on, I would feel kind of like gross. Or I'd feel this urge to check my phone right before bed to like see, was there another story about the book? Uh, I took Twitter off my phone. I took the internet off my phone. Wow, Because I was su- I was such a junkie that I was logging into Safari. I was going into the internet and then logging into Twitter through the website. And sure enough, the first two weeks, I was like, ugh. Begging like my wife for the password who I gave it to, you know, to, to to so I wouldn't know how to put it back on my phone to go load it up, and then it's like after two weeks the brain kind of remodels and I'm like I'm free, this is so great, um, but I think like there's you cannot zen or think your way into these things you have to actually do the behaviors and so much of it is just not exposing yourself to the thing. That, that is gonna strive, or that, excuse me, that's gonna get you to strive. And like Strava's business model is you craving it. That's time spent on Strava. That's the same thing with Twitter, with Facebook, with Afflinks, with all these things that are so results driven.
0: That's really difficult for a lot of runners to hear because it's, it's almost the way that we build community in the digital age is by interacting with each other on social media platforms like Strava or Twitter. And you know, they're imperfect, but at the same time, how do you, how do you balance the fact that these platforms can be used for good with the fact that over relying on them is, is just a surefire way to get anxious about not only your running, but just, just anxiety in general?
1: Totally. So I think that it is, um, it is setting boundaries and then adhering to those boundaries. Like what I didn't say is that I took Twitter off my computer, I DM'd you on Twitter. That's how we set up this podcast, that's how we met. I met Steve, my co-author on Twitter. So like, I'm the first person to say like there is a lot of good in these platforms. Um, But now I only use it when I'm at my computer. So Twitter is a part of my job. It's no longer a part of my life. And I think that for the runner, if running is like a hobby and you want to stay connected through Strava or through something, great. Try giving yourself two by 20 minutes a week. So you check on, on Tuesday and on Thursday and you do it at the same time. And out of that window, you can't do it. Um, in, 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 if it's Twitter or Facebook, like limit, I think limiting use is really good. And I think really getting at the motivation, like, am I doing this so I can share the result? And if you are, I would challenge you not to share the result and let it feel painful. Like you really want to at first, but then see how it feels after a little while of doing that. Uh, cause I, I think that like that is the slippery slope to this kind of craving is when you find yourself doing something because you want the result like if I wrote books so I could try to get on a bestseller list and that was driving the ship I'd be miserable
0: yeah and you you mentioned earlier you wrote this book because you had a question and you were satisfying a curiosity and itch that you had
1: and well, what happens is like you said because I think you point this out so well is the it's a slippery slope because yes that's why I wrote the book but then when the book came out I was like obsessively checking Twitter And like, that's not, you can't judge yourself. That's not the problem. I was just doing what a human that wrote a book that has Twitter does. It's about being aware enough to realize that you're doing it and then make a conscious decision that, hey, maybe I need to get rid of this technology right now.
0: Yeah, put some guardrails around it so that you're not solely at the whims of the platform. Because, you know, we should should also note these platforms have computer engineers and scientists on staff that do their damnedest to make sure that you stay on that platform and they manipulate your dopamine receptors just like running does. And it's a, it's a slippery slope to get addicted to some of these platforms. Um, now Brad, I want to kind of ask you a, uh, a, uh, a, a somewhat of a confrontational question. Uh, bring it. Yeah. So you talk about the 24-hour rule, and and this is a great rule that, that kind of says no matter if you have uh, something great happen to you or something terrible happen to you, take 24 hours to celebrate or get down on yourself and then pick yourself back up and get back to work. How do you justify that in addition to uh, one of the big themes in your book, which is balance is a myth and that you have to go all in, you know, you're know, you kind of saying let's go all in and, and you know, I just have a hard time with that because, you know, how do we prevent burnout if we're going all in and, and only giving ourselves a twenty four hour break? Because you know, in my head I'm thinking if you have a great marathon, you need a lot more than twenty four hours. Yeah, and that's sometimes where I thought
1: you are going. Yeah. It's not like get back to working out in the case of a runner in twenty four hours, but it's it's get back to doing something other than celebrating or grieving. I
0: see. So it's that's get back really to important. work, even though that work might be recovery.
1: That work might be recovery. That work might be reading a book about that running. That work might be reading a novel that has nothing to do with the sport, but it is um, it is something that is not the celebrating or the, the, the grieving. That 24-hour rule, it, it's more effective, I think, in like a corporate setting where like you can get back to some kind of work. It doesn't have to be intensity. For a runner, maybe it's taking a light walk or like kicking around in a pool or like you said, maybe it's sitting on a couch eating avocados. Like if it's 24 hours after a hard marathon, that's probably the best thing. (laughs) Um, But it's more meant to be like don't spend too much time in that loop of I'm so great because I hit my goal time or I'm a failure because I didn't.
0: You helped me understand that with one sentence. You said get away from the grieving or the celebrating. And that's it. That's what we're talking about: the grieving or yeah. the celebrating. And
1: and I like that's that. The stuff that. That's the stuff that brings that. That those roots in your brain grow really fast. Yeah. Even more on the celebrating than the grieving. People that are driven have no problem generally moving on from the grieving, but the celebrating—that's the stuff that like is sticky.
0: Yeah, I found that from an entrepreneurial perspective because whenever I have you know something great happen in in the business or you know professionally you know, I love it. And it's, it's, it's such an amazing thing to celebrate. And my wife will tell you, I'm all excited sometimes. Um, but then when bad things happen, I don't get down about it. I just move on from it. And and I think, yeah, we have to strike that balance there.
1: Yeah, totally. In And I think like in the business sense, for sure, like I the, the times that I have had essays published in the New York Times, which is a writer is like the penultimate thing, or excuse me, not the pen, the ultimate thing. I am like, dopamine up the wazoo. I'm so excited. And I'm so stoked. And if I let that stoke go for more than a day, I tend to like feel really empty and bad at the come down because I realize like still have the same wife, still have the same kids, still have the same friends. No one really cares more about me. Um, so it's just like you have to like get your nose in that and kind of feel what it's like enough to realize that, Hey, like I need to cap this because if I cap it, I'll just feel great and go back to life. But if I convince myself that this is actually life and it's not, I'm gonna be sad after.
0: Brad, I think your book does a really good way of explaining how to pursue something that you're really, really interested in in a healthy way, in a sustainable way, and through a set of behaviors that allow you to succeed and thrive. So um, I'm, I'm super excited about it. Thank you so much for sending me a copy. I can't wait to read it. Uh, do you have any other final recommendations that I may not have gone over during our chat today for runners who want to continue pursuing their passion in a sustainable way?
1: Yeah, so I think that um, this is a great conversation, so thank you. The, the one thing that I would add Is that uh, type A perfectionist runners might hear this and then try to be like perfect at being productively passionate and make that like the perfect aim? Like, oh, I'm gonna be like perfect about being passionate productively. Um, Just be self compassionate. Like, behavior change is really hard and understand that if you heard one thing or two things or, or maybe even three that you're gonna try to change as a result of this conversation that's great. But don't be too hard on yourself if like you relapse into old behaviors because you probably will. And the worst thing that you can do is judge yourself and like whip yourself for that. Just like be kind to yourself. Realize, yep, changing behavior is hard. I'm going to get back on the bandwagon. Um, Because one of the top ways to flame out in trying to change your behavior is to try too hard, which is totally paradoxical that you try too hard, you fail, you get all sad that you failed. And then you're like, fuck it, I'm never going to be able to do this. Um, so if you're, if you're going to try to change one, two, three things, hopefully you nail it right away. But if you don't just be kind to yourself, realize it's hard and then get back to it.
0: That's a really valuable lesson that I've learned, not just from, from you during this conversation, but you know, I'm an avid Twitter follower of you and I just love everything you put out in the world. And one of the, one of the big themes of the things that you publish on Twitter is to be kind to yourself and not to overly judge yourself. And you know, as runners, and, and, and me as a coach, I'm always uh, trying to get runners not to fall into that comparison trap. And yeah. a very close cousin to the comparison trap is the the trap of being too hard on yourself. And it's almost totally. like comparing the ideal version of yourself that you have in your head with the reality of who you are. And totally, yeah, if we can be a little bit more kind to each other, we recognize that we're human beings, we make mistakes, that, believe it or not, is going to make you a better runner.
1: Totally. We can end right there because that's really nice. But I'll say one last thing. Uh, Shalane Flanagan's become a good friend. And she often talks about how that New York race, she was like running out of love. Uh, There wasn't fear. There wasn't constriction. There wasn't like the self-imposed pressure that I have to do it. She's just running out of a place of love. And I think that the more that you can be kind to yourself, judgment is like uh, if you just if, if listeners think about a time when you're judging yourself the emotion that tends to come up is tightness and constricting. It's really hard to perform well when you're tight and constricted. If you think about love or a time of kindness tends to be open and expansive. And that's when you can have those flow moments. Um, So I couldn't agree more.
0: I love it. And that positivity is going to surely make you able to endure a lot better in any race. Brad, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, it's Jason. Just a minute before you leave today. Thank you for listening. Your passion for running is the reason why I can continue my passion for this podcast. If it's been helpful for you, if you like to listen to this podcast on your morning runs, if you bring me to bed with you at night, seriously, one listener told me he does that to help him drift off to sleep and I could not have giggled harder, (laughs) then please leave a review in Apple Music. Those ratings and reviews are enormously helpful and they also just make my day. Please also check out our sponsor SteadyMD. I couldn't do this podcast without the support of our sponsors. SteadyMD is led by sub three marathoner, Dr. Josh Emder. The goal is to give you a personal doctor online. That's just for runners to help you stay fit, healthy, injury-free and competitive. And the best part, this is not like a normal doctor. There are no copays, pays waiting room, surprise bills. You're going to get same day responses from a doctor who's there for you 24 seven. Now, if you've ever seen a doctor or maybe even a physical therapist who has no experience with runners, if you've had a PT say, oh, you're just not made for running, then, <laughs> then you know how valuable it is to see a doctor who understands running. Having a doctor who gets you and who understands your running goals is priceless. Go to SteadyMD.com slash to see if there are any spots left and how you can benefit from having a PCP who's also a runner. That's SteadyMD.com slash to see all the details they've put together for you. That's it for me today. Besides, one more quick thought. I just had the idea actually of maybe teasing our next guest at the end of each episode. So if you stayed with me until the end, you're the first to know who will be on the show next. And it's none other than the winner of the 2016 Olympic Trials 800 meters, second at the 2017 Outdoor Track National Championships 1500 meters, a 422 miler with the nickname Fast Kate, none other than Kate Grace. I can't wait to share with you next week. Stay tuned and thank you so much for being here.